רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Andrian Murr is a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. He has a very, very rich uh, bibliography and CV. Uh, among others, he was a presenter of the BBC radio series, A History of the Infinite. He is the joint editor of Mind, the famous paper, the famous journal that was published by Gilbert Weil. And he has written many books, including The Infinite, Nobel in Wisdom, Infinite and Faculty, Points of View, which he considered to be his most important book, Language, World and Limit, and most recently, Gödel Theorem, a very short introduction. So, Professor Adrian Moore, thank you so much for coming. How are you today? Uh, I'm very well, Roy, and let me... Um... reciprocate and thank you very much for inviting me it's extremely kind of you and i i appreciate this this is quite an honor thank you so before the show i told you that there is a big problem in this discussion because i have an israeli english and you are speaking oxfordian english i will do my best to speak you will do your best to understand and let's see if we can move on mm-hmm. now a uh, Am I correct? This mind was uh, coined or was uh, invented by Gilbert Reid. He was the first editor. No, that's, uh, that's actually not correct. He, he, he was an editor for a number of years, but um, it had um, been edited by other people before then. And in fact, one of the previous editors was um, a, a famous philosopher who's... Uh, name is the same as mine G e more um he edited the journal for a while so um but but you're quite right that Ryle um edited the journal for a long while and it is often associated with with him yeah this is the same role of Principia etica uh, yes yes this uh, is a big name yes uh, uh, G more no no relation <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah Okay, so I want to start. There was a very good philosopher, not a professional philosopher, named Brian McGee. He passed away recently, and he was a great advocate of philosophy mm-hmm. for the public. I think a British version of Will Durant. And in his autobiography, he kept saying that it is almost mandatory For any modern philosopher to be equipped with modern science, quantum physics, math. And he said that in his first uh, conversation with Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell said the very same thing, that you cannot be a modern philosopher, and this was like, I think, 60 years ago, without knowing what 
modern math is all about, what modern physics is all about. And I think that this is not by chance that Russell and Wittgenstein and Karl Popper, to name just a few, were also trained in the science, not only in the humanities. Now, you wrote a book about the infinite, and our book today that we are going to discuss is going to be about Gödel theorem. And Gödel theorem is a math sentence. So we are going to discuss something from the theory of mathematics, but you're a professor of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So could you please elaborate on the necessity to learn or to learn science and humanities to write something about humanities? Uh, yes. Um, I myself uh, think of philosophy as a humanities discipline. Um, but I also agree that it is increasingly important for um, philosophers to be engaged with the sciences and with mathematics, uh, partly because the sciences and the math and mathematics are such an important part of human life. Um, if philosophy is concerned with what it is like to be human, then at least indirectly, they're going to be concerned with sciences and with mathematics as well, because those play such a, a significant role in our lives. Um, and hi historically, I mean, you've already mentioned some examples, but um, you can go back much further and find lots and lots of examples of great philosophers who have also been great mathematicians. Um, and, and Newton, Leibniz, Descartes. Exactly, exactly. Um, Aristotle. Yes, indeed. Um, that's right. Um, and Plato, I mean, if we go all the way back to Plato, uh, famously, I mean, this may be apocryphal, but the story goes that when he founded the School of Athens, there was an inscription above the entrance to the school which said, let no one enter here who is ignorant of geometry. So philosophers have always thought that maths was important. But, um, I mean, if we think specifically about mathematics, um, as opposed to the empirical sciences, um, there's no doubt that um, it has a lot in common with philosophy anyway, um, because of the way in which both of them encourage a kind of abstraction, thinking in abstract terms, thinking in terms of structures, um, which is as significant a, a component of philosophy as it is of mathematics. So the very methodology is, is, is often very similar. I mean, both of these disciplines involve sitting in your armchair and thinking very hard. <laughs> um, so, you know, neither mathematicians nor philosophers go out and get their hands dirty in the way that other practitioners of other disciplines do. They've got a lot in common. And also, um, there just are a lot of uh, really, really interesting philosophical questions about mathematics. So 
um, there are always going to be philosophers that have a particular interest in the philosophy of mathematics. And as it happens, I'm one of those. I mean, I am a professional philosopher, but one of my main interests is the philosophy of mathematics. And that's part of the reason that I was interested in Gödel's theorem. It is, it's a mathematical result um, and it's proved in a rigorous mathematical way, but it's a mathematical result that raises philosophical questions. And it's a result that philosophers have always been interested in ever since Gödel established it almost a century ago. It is like the hitchhiker guide to the galaxy where the AI system say, okay, the meaning of the universe is 42. And then you, the philosophers, need to write about what does it mean. Exactly. Okay? Postulate about this. Because Gödel said yeah. something profoundly important about math that we mm. cannot have, and we are going to cover it later on. But you say, okay, but if I take Gödel theorem, into the theory of knowledge, what does it mean? Okay, what are the implications of good theory in the real world or the world of philosophy? And this is part of the domain of philosophy. Would you agree? I, I, I totally, totally agree. You, um, you've, you've put it very well, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we need to go to Gödel theorem, and it's not Gödel, like we say in Hebrew, and it's Gödel because he was a German. Like all, uh, I think most of the most of the mathematicians for in I don't know in the 19th century came from Germany. We mm -hmm. had David Hilbert, and we have many many others, and Kurt Gödel was one of them. And what we want to do, and I want to state it up front, we want first to explain, even to a non-mathematical audience, A, what is Gödel theorem? We know that he has two sentences. Are we going to cover just the first of the two? What is the theorem in general? And B, which is more important in my opinion, why does it important? Okay, mm -hmm. so with your permission, can we start with what is Gödel theorem? Good, okay. Um, I think it may help if we begin by thinking about uh, geometry. Um, Gödel's theorem is not a theorem about geometry, but, but I hope to explain um, why that's a helpful starting point. Um, a lot of people, when they study geometry, um, and in particular when they study it at school, study it in a, a, an axiomatic way, what, what's called an axiomatic way. Um, and this goes right the way back to um, a great a Greek uh, Mathematician Euclid, exactly. There it is, Euclid's elements. Uh, <clears throat> and what you find in Euclid's elements is, is what's called an axiomatization. And what that means is that he starts with some absolutely fundamental principles, um, which um, 
often called axioms. That's where the word axiomatization comes from. Some fundamental principles that, that he says he's going to take for granted. So for example, um, here, here's an example of one of his fundamental principles. Um, between any two points on a plane, there is a straight line. I want to show the audience yes. that, that the postulates of the axioms are, we have just five. Yeah. And they are very, very narrow. For example, what you said, and to produce a finite, a finite straight line continuously in a straight line. If you have a straight line, you can continue the straight line and that all right angles are equal to one another. So we start with those five postulates. The fifth is a little bit tricky, but we start yeah. with the five postulates and all 13 books of Euclid geometry rise from those five postulates. If we can agree on those postulates, mm -hmm. then we can move on. And as Bertrand Russell said, when I was first introduced to geometry, when I was first introduced to geometry by my brother, he told me, I said, yes, but approve me those axioms. And he said, shut up. If you want yeah. to continue, just yeah. get the axioms. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, that's that's uh, very well explained, Roy. So that's, uh, that's right. I mean, what you've got there are some very, very, very fundamental principles that, that can't themselves be proved um, or that Euclid does not attempt to prove. Um, basically, he's saying, look, you've got to take this for granted. If you don't take these fundamental principles for granted, then um, you can't make any further progress. You're, you, you're, if you wanted to deny one of these principles, um, in effect, you would just be changing the subject. You wouldn't be talking about geometry any longer. That was that was the attitude. Really, really basic ideas that seem to be integral to our very understanding of space. But then, and this is the remarkable thing, on the strength of these rather meager principles, he goes on to prove more and more complicated results, more and more complicated theorems, and um, including the, the famous theorem of Pythagoras, that the uh, square on the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle uh, is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides. Um, and that, that is by no means obvious, but Euclid um, tries to derive it from these obvious basic principles, these starting points. Um, now, uh, we could obviously, we could spend a long, long time talking about uh, geometry, and, and in particular, um, it, it, it turns out that um, the situation is nowhere near as straightforward as Euclid thought it was. And um, there's good reason nowadays to think that space is not the way that he described it, that some of his basic principles are incorrect as a description of physical space. So, you know, that's that's a big fascinating issue. Let me just recap. Road. Let me just, uh, please just, let, let, let me just recap what you just said. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, take, for example, uh, the postulate of the axioms that between two 
two dots, we have only one line. Yeah. This is this holds true if our space is like a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. But if we have a spherical space, we can think of two dots in the upper and the bottom uh, corner or, or uh, upper and bottom centers of, of a sphere. And then we have infinite numbers of lines. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can just draw a triangle on a balloon and just uh, blow the balloon. And you will see that the sum of angles will be 270 degrees, not 180. Okay. Yeah. So again, what Euclid said from the gods is absolutely correct, given that the uh, axioms are correct and given the space is on a sheet of paper. You mm-hmm. change one thing, the entire geometry changes. Yeah. How does it relate to Gödel? So now we, we need to um, relate it to Gödel, as you say. So um, Gödel's theorem is a theorem about arithmetic, not about geometry. Um, it's a theorem about arithmetic rather than a theorem of arithmetic. And um, when I use the word arithmetic, um, I'm using it in a fairly technical sense. What what I mean by arithmetic is the study of what people call the natural numbers. And when they talk about the natural numbers, they mean zero, one, two, three, et cetera, non non-negative whole numbers. So we're not we're not talking about fractions and we're not talking about things like the square root of two. Um, and we're certainly not talking about things like the square root of minus one. Um, we're just talking about these natural numbers, the study of these natural numbers and, and the operations that apply to them like addition and multiplication. That's that's what I mean by arithmetic. So you might think that's a fairly modest sort of theory. But what Gödel's theorem says is that um, what Euclid did do or tried to do for geometry and what can be done for geometry can't, cannot be done in the case of arithmetic. It is impossible to capture all the um, truths of arithmetic in some basic principles, fundamental principles. Um, If you try, if you, supposing somebody came up with some fundamental principles and said, well, I think I think these capture the the whole of um, arithmetical truth. then um, one or other of two things would happen. Um, Either they will fall short, um, there will be some truths, some arithmetical truths that they can't prove using their principles, or they will go wrong in the other direction. They will overshoot. Um, They'll have principles that are so strong that they can be used to prove all the arithmetical truths, but the price that you pay is that they can be used to prove some arithmetical falsehoods as well. 
so there's no there's no way of sort of striking a happy medium you're going to you're going to either go too far in that direction or too far in that direction now this is so mind blowing and this is so counterintuitive that it thinks that we need to go a little bit back mm-hmm. when we speak about axiom in the world of geometry i know what we are speaking of okay mm-hmm. i know that we have two lines and i can I know I know the axioms but when you speak about axiom in the world of arithmetics and I think that you give toward piano arithmetic but I don't know if if this is the right time to insert it could you please give me an example of such an axiom because we don't learn arithmetic we learn as in kindergarten and in kindergarten I have one candy and you have one candy and if I take your candy I have two candies So why do you speak about axiom in the world in this in in the simple world of arithmetic? Yeah. Good. Okay, so let's let's um, let's think back to kindergarten. Let's think back to your first encounters with arithmetic. I mean, right at the very beginning, perhaps you are counting pieces of fruit. Um, But eventually you'll be adding numbers and you'll be multiplying numbers. And eventually, I mean, you don't need to be that sophisticated before you're doing things like multiplying 827 by 240. And you will have been given rules that tell you how to do that. Um, And uh, different people are are taught different rules, actually. There are are different ways of of doing multiplications. But if you want to multiply 827 by 240, you'll be relying on some some rules, some basic principles. And in particular, in that case, 827 times 240, or whatever it was, I may have already misremembered, but 827 by 240, One of the things that you'll be doing, one of the steps that you'll have to take is uh, you'll have to ask yourself, what is seven times zero? Um, Because one of these numbers ends with a seven and one of them ends with a zero. And at at some point in the calculation, uh, the question will arise, what is seven times zero? And one of the things that you will have been taught is that if you multiply anything by zero, you get zero. And in effect, that's an axiom. That's a basic principle about uh, the natural numbers. Any natural number multiplied by zero is zero. Um, And uh, let's think back to Bertrand Russell. I mean, if a little Bertrand Russell came along and said, yeah, but how do you know that any number multiplied by zero is zero, we we would have to give him the same answer that Russell's brother gave him, which is shut up, you know, those are- Because, because. Just because, that's right. Those those are the rules, right? Um, If you you query these rules, then you're not going to get a gold star on your homework. Um, So so, uh, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, you're quite right. We don't, at school, we don't learn arithmetic axiomatically in the same way that people do learn geometry axiomatically, or at least it doesn't seem as if we do. But actually, in effect, 
we do. We do have basic rules that we're taught. We do have basic principles that we're taught. And we use those if we're multiplying numbers or even if we're adding numbers together. You gave a wonderful example of an axiom that we unconsciously use. And when we think about it, you say, hey, just a second. Mm. This is not straightforward. Do we have another examples in the world of arithmetic axioms that we say this is also an axiom that we use and we cannot prove? Yeah. Um, so the example of um, any number multiplied by zero is zero. That's, that's pretty elementary. Uh, something that's a bit more sophisticated, although it's still... A basic principle that that um, just has to be accepted is um, if you've got um, a, a property that um, the number zero has and if you can show that um, if ever any number has this property then it's successor must have the property as well so if this property applies to a number n then it also applies to n plus one if 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 those two things are true it applies to zero and if it applies to n it applies to n plus one if those two things are true then this property will apply to all the natural numbers now again that seems fairly obvious it's a it's a It's a bit it's a bit more sophisticated, quite a bit more sophisticated than the principle about multiplying by zero. Um, but it's another example of, of a basic principle that an, an arithmetician will take for granted. And again, what you said, and this I think that this goes back to what we call piano arithmetic. and the idea is, that the way mathematicians describe the natural numbers is quite different than the normal people. Okay, we take a number n and say, okay, if n hold this property, okay, mm -hmm. I can have n candies. I have, I can add another, I can add one, or the next element in the sequence is going to have the same properties, okay? Mm -hmm. But zero, as you said before, is a very strange number. Mm. So I can't, I can't put zero in, into this sequence, but I cannot eliminate zero. I must have zero if I want to multiply. So again, on the face, it seems that the basic, the foundation of arithmetics are not that clear. This is a basic, or, or this is what... This is a problem that Gödel wanted to solve? Yeah, I mean, uh, before Gödel proved his result, people were trying to do the same for arithmetic that had been done for geometry. Um, Principia Mathematica, for example, by Bertrand Russell. This is, this is a classic example. This is perhaps the classic example. Um, Bertrand Russell, along with his former Whitehead, tutor, Whitehead they, 
wrote uh, this enormous um unreadable tome and unreadable totally unreadable tome um extending to three volumes um and their aim was to provide fundamental principles from which they could derive all arithmetical truths and in not just arithmetic actually i mean they were interested in capturing other branches of mathematics as well um but uh, in particular if if they had succeeded they would have provided an axiomatization of arithmetic and eventually Gödel said look what they were trying to do was impossible what they were trying to do could not be done and um in fact Gödel's own original paper um in which he proved this theorem um mentioned this work by uh, Russell and Whitehead in its title it's actually part of the title of the paper because uh, what Gödel did was he used that as a kind of case study um he showed in particular that Russell and Whitehead had not succeeded in doing what they were trying to do um but um he showed it in such a way as to rule out the very possibility of doing what they were trying to do um so it wasn't it wasn't just that they themselves had slipped up that the whole project was doomed to failure they okay so the idea of the entire uh project of Russell and Whitehead was to establish arithmetic and math in general on solid foundations yeah and they wanted to do it based on logic because we know logic is true if yes. all humans are immortal and, so- and Socrates is a human then Socrates is immortal etc but more precisely they wanted to extract arithmetics from set theory or type theory as Russell called it and mm-hmm. they say okay we can we can treat the number two of the in Hebrew we say group but group in in other contexts in in English is like Chavua, so it's a different thing but we can look on all the groups of uh, or all the groups that have two elements etc 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 and then try to build an enormous logical building but then something is missing what about the group of all groups that doesn't that don't include themselves in the group yeah. okay the the liar paradox And then we see mm, the foundations are unstable. Mm-hmm. And what Gödel said uh, almost 25 years later, he said, this is not because Russell wasn't a smart man enough. This is because this project is impossible. Yeah. You can't rely, you can't build solid foundations yeah. for arithmetic. Uh, good yeah uh, uh, so again what you've just said is excellent but I think we have to there's a crucial distinction that we have to draw um we have to draw the distinction between uh providing arithmetic with um an axiomatic basis and on the one hand and on the other hand the very specific way in which Russell and Whitehead tried to do that 
Now, as it happened, I mean, everything you've said is 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 right. As it happened, what they tried to do was they tried to provide it with a basis in set theory. Um, and they uh, tried to define arithmetical notions in set theoretical terms. Now, it's important to realize that that was not the problem. That wasn't the problem. Um, I mean, that was the particular form that the project took in their case, but that wasn't where it went wrong. What Gödel showed was the problem was trying to provide an axiomatic basis at all. So suppose that uh, Russell and Whitehead had not been interested in reducing arithmetic to set theory, or suppose they hadn't wanted their axioms to be fundamentally logical. Suppose that they were prepared to accept that arithmetical notions can only be understood in arithmetical terms. Even then, the project was doomed to failure. And that was, so that's what Gödel showed. You, you can't, um, provide arithmetic with an axiomatic base at all. It's not just that you can't do so in set theoretical terms. You, you, you can't do so full stop. Thank you so much. Again, every other direction they would have taken mm. would also failed. Yeah. This is what you said. Yeah. And, and so what is the fear? I, I, uh, the fear is that the calculator, my calculator, tomorrow morning will produce a different result than what it produced yesterday? No. The fear is that we cannot be precisely sure 100%. And we thought that in math, we can. Math was the queen of sciences. Yeah. Not um, like metaphysics, the real queen of sciences. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I think I would want to draw a distinction between... Um, questions about um, what we can lay down as principles of proof and questions about what we can be certain of. So it may be that we can devise principles for arithmetic that are absolutely certain. Maybe. I mean, this is now philosophical, a philosophical question rather than a mathematical question. Um, who, who knows? Who knows what counts as certainty? But perhaps we can be certain that any number multiplied by zero is zero. Um, I mean, perhaps we can be certain of that because that's just one of our rules. I mean, that's a little bit like, maybe that's a little bit like saying that the bishop moves diagonally in chairs. You know, maybe it's just a game that we've invented. Who knows? I mean, these are really, really, really deep philosophical questions. Um, and philosophers disagree about them. Um, but, it, but in a way, all of that is separate. We can put all of those questions to one side, uh, whether there's certainty or not. The fact is that um, the principles that we lay down are not going to be strong enough to do everything that we want them to do unless they're so strong that they include some mistakes. That's, that's the problem. Now, let's go back to your pocket calculator. Um, I mean, I, you raised a really good question. What, what's the worry? Is the worry that my 
pocket calculator will start giving the wrong results. Um, no, um, there's no reason to think that your pocket calculator is going to start giving the wrong results. What is true is that your po pocket calculator is incredibly limited. Um, it, I mean, it does a hell of a lot, but there's also a hell of a lot that it can't do. Um, you can get it to add numbers for you. You can get it to multiply numbers. Um, the numbers had better not be too big. Um, I mean, if you've got two really colossal great numbers, uh, your pocket calculator is not going to be able to multiply them because you can't even fit them on the screen. So it's limited. And also the other thing that your pocket calculator can't do is it can't establish uh, general truths about natural numbers like the truth that there are infinitely many primes. Um, I mean, it's a well-known result that there are infinitely many primes and, and that has been known since Greek times and that can be proved, but that's not something that your pocket calculator can prove. Okay, no, but again, the pocket calculator, I think is a good example of what is the big importance of Gödel theorem. It's not about, it's not physics in, in a way that tomorrow morning we will have a new experiment that will deny the theory of quantum gravity or quantum mechanics. Right. This is something completely and inherently different. Mm -hmm. We know, we know, just a second. We know that this is truth. But what you said, if our theory is complete, it is inconsistent, and in plain English, it contains error. Yeah. So I don't, I can't separate it. I'm so strong, but I can't separate truth from, from, from falsehood. This is one. And if I want to say, no, 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 I can't accept false. I just want truth. Your theory will not be complete. You exactly. need to choose between yeah. complete and inconsistent, yeah. inconsistent means it might be false. We don't know. Um, actually, and, no, it's, it's worse than that. Inconsistent means that it, some of it is definitely false. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it is either complete and inconsistent or consistent, but it's not complete. And yeah. by not complete, I mean, we can't say, we can prove it. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Yeah, I mean, if so, so, so suppose somebody comes up with some axioms like like Euclid's axioms for geometry, except that they concern arithmetic. Um, then, um, and let's suppose that they are that they're consistent. That you know these these basic principles are true. Um, then there will be some truths about the natural numbers that can't be proved on that basis. Um, now, we have to be very, we have to be very, very careful. We have to be very careful to emphasize on that basis. People sometimes claim that Gödel showed that there are some arithmetical truths that can't be proved full stop. 
And and that's not true. Gödel never proved anything of the sort. The, the, what Gödel showed is that any particular set of basic principles will have its limitations, um, and there will be things that you can't prove on that basis. And again, okay, my set is limited. Okay, I will give you a bigger set, a stronger set. Yeah. Yes, but this stronger set will also have will also has its own limitations. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So you start off with a limited set of axioms. You can always supplement them. You can always say, okay, so we have to add something. But there will always be there will always be limitations unless and until you sort of slip over the edge. Um, and then you're at the point that you've got errors in your system. Now, before we move on to the implications, and I think the implications are in the historical context of what is, how noble a person is, what distinguishes us, can we even know something to its core? I want to take a, a little step backwards. Many people, I think, uh, were introduced to get the theorem by Douglas Hofstadter in his Gödel Escherbach. Mm-hmm. And in, in his Gödel Escherbach, he said that one a very important aspect of Gödel theorem was not just about the conclusion. It was a sentence, a theorem about natural number, of, of, a theorem of arithmetics expressed in arithmetics. And this is, a, and this is like the, where the genius came. Mm-hmm. He expressed a theory of arithmetics in arithmetics. Could, could you please elaborate on this point? Because I think that this is, again, mind-blowing. Well, um, I'm going to disappoint you, I think, in as much as I'm inclined. I mean, I, I, sorry, let me begin again. Um, oh. Don't start with I'm going to disappoint you. Yeah, okay. No, well, I, no, I, I say let me begin again, but I but I want to retain that because I am going to disappoint you. I am going to disappoint you. Um and and the reason that I'm going to disappoint you is that although um what you've just said is correct, um, and although the picture that Hofstadter paints is correct. Um, in a way, it's a little bit misleading. I mean, we do best to think of Gödel's theorem as a theorem about arithmetic and not a theorem of arithmetic. Um, and it's actually, it's helpful, I think, to keep those two things separate rather than to try to run them together. Now, the thing is that is this um what Gödel did show as part of proving his result is that um when we make certain claims about arithmetic they can correspond to certain claims about natural numbers, certain claims in arithmetic. Um, I mean, roughly speaking, what's going on here is that you can assign numbers to 
uh, expressions and formulae that we use in arithmetic. And when we make claims about those expressions, we can sort of cash them out into corresponding claims about the natural numbers. And that's crucial to Gödel's theorem. And that's the sort of thing that Hofstadter is keen to emphasize. And people uh, in seminars in the math departments are totally obsessed with, but to the general public, the most important idea is not this, this great, cool, neat trick about how he, uh, how he hacked it, but mm. what is the theory, yes? Yeah. Okay. And I think as far as that goes, um, it's, it's overwhelmingly more satisfactory to keep these things separate than it is to run them together, to, to distinguish carefully between a theorem about arithmetic and a theorem of arithmetic. And what Gödel's theorem is, is a theorem about arithmetic. Okay, so let's go to the implications, but I would want to start with the historical con context. And the 19th century was a very, very arrogant century. You know, uh, religious re religion is uh, nonsense. We have one, uh, we are uh, one century after the enlightenment, Voltaire. Voltaire hated the church and Will Durant said in Story of Civilization that one century after the enlightenment, hating the church was translated into hating religion. And we and we dismiss the ancients, you know, the ancient Plato were just uh, pagans, okay? And all, and again, White had said that all Western philosophy are footnotes to the work of Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but the 19th arrogant century just dismissed the ancient. And we thought that we are going, we are on, on the edge of discovering everything. And then came, quantum mechanics and relativity and the Titanic and World War I. Mm -hmm. And in this context, we also have a very big bomb, Gödel theorem. So all those incident and Titanic is part of those. We are not that strong and smart and sophisticated as we thought we are. Could you please put Gödel theorem in the bigger context of what does it do to to our humility? Yeah, uh, good. Okay, so so um, Gödel's theorem has often been interpreted in in exactly the way in which you've just outlined it as you know yet another indication of the uh, limitations of uh, human inquiry. Um, and limitations on what we can know and, and how much we can establish and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's often seen in, in that light because um, here's Gödel telling us that every time we try to lay down fundamental principles for arithmetic, something goes wrong. Um, and so it does. It looks like one of these results that um, check human hubris, human arrogance. But 
Um, again, we have to tread very carefully. And um, there is a whole school of thought um, which Hofstadter discusses in his book um, due to, um, in particular, John Lucas and Roger Penrose, a famous philosopher and a famous mathematician, a whole school of thought according to which we have to draw the very opposite conclusion that actually what Gödel's theorem does is show us something about the power of the human mind, not the limitations of the human mind. The intuition, the power of intuition. The, yeah, and, and the idea is that um, actually Gödel's theorem shows that um, we human beings can do something that no computer can do, for example. So if you had a computer, or I mean, we were talking earlier about a, a pocket calculator, but it could be a more sophisticated version of the same thing. A computer that was programmed to prove mathematical the um, theorems, and in particular theorems of arithmetic, um, it would have to work with some basic principles and rules. It would have to work on the basis of an axiomatization. And Gödel's theorem shows that there would therefore be um, a problem for it. I mean, either there's stuff that it can't prove or it contains some errors. That's, that's what Gödel's theorem shows. But Lucas and Penrose say, what the computer can't do, we can do. The computer can't go past its own program, but we can look at the program and see how it needs to be supplemented. Um, and admittedly, if we supplement it, the same problem will kick in again, but we always can supplement it. And according to this argument, which, by the way, I'm not endorsing. I'm, I'm outlining the argument. I'm not endorsing the argument. But according to this argument, the lesson of Gödel's theorem is a positive lesson, not a negative lesson. It's a lesson about um, uh, the, the power of the human mind, not the limitations of the human mind. Let me just say a, a recap to know... To to see if I get it right, because I didn't think about it. And I think that this is a really cool idea. The idea is that if you take the side of, of incomplete and uh, consistent, you said, okay, this is incomplete, but I as a human being have my own intuition. I don't know how from the Latin intuitaria, I just look, I see. Okay, mm -hmm. I got it from the God, I got it from the transcendent. I don't know why, but I can know things about the physical world that are absolute truth without being able to prove. By the way, this is the, the mere uh, uh, definition of intuition. You know something, you, you know something, but you don't know how you know it. Mm -hmm. And this might be the strength of Geta theorem. This was this did this might be what eventually distinguish between man and an AI system, this intuition, okay? Now, this is a very positive uh, something to draw from Gödel, but you said that you are not endorsing this argument. 
So yes. since you are, uh, and in ancient Hebrew, old is smart, since you are old enough, you can say, what is your opinion on this debate? Yes. Well, I was neither endorsing it nor rejecting it. Oh, although... okay. <laughs> what is your opinion? Um, I mean, uh, uh, so so um, the really the really cheeky answer to that question is um, uh, you have to look at uh, um, uh, uh, chapter chapter seven of my book. <laughs> um, but um, I, I mean, in in fact, let me say that um, I disagree with Lucas and. Penrose about this um I think by the way chapter seven is called Hilbert program the human mind and computer yeah uh, that's that's right and in particular the the this is obviously concerned with the human mind and yes and computers yes this um, was written before chat GPT I think yes <laughs> <laughs> um, yes um but um So I disagree with I disagree with them. I think for various reasons, they may be underestimating what computers can do. And for various reasons, I think they may be overestimating what the human mind can do. So I so I do disagree with them. But even so, I also would want to echo what you just said about how um, Gödel's theorem does reveal the power of the human mind, which is what L- Lucas and Penrose think. I mean, to that extent, I agree with them. Um, we can see how to... supplement our incomplete axioms um, and it does involve a kind of intuition and um, I mean there's a kind of intuition involved in laying down those axioms in the first place you know let's go back to the question that we raised earlier why are we so sure that any number multiplied by zero is zero? That's a fascinating philosophical question in its own right. Um, but something similar um, entitles us to um, supplement our incomplete axiom system in a particular way. Um, and it is remarkable that we can do that. And that's where the really difficult philosophical questions kick in, it seems to me, because... Obviously, there's an issue about how we how we do that. what what is the what is the mechanism at work here? How does the human mind work? How does the human mind tune in to mathematical reality? Now it seems, uh, according to what you said, mathematical reality, that if you just you know write on Wikipedia philosophy of mathematics, you have many school of thoughts yeah one of them was formalism mm-hmm. that, that math is just a set of statements now if we have statements that we know to be correct to be true but we can't 
uh, but we can prove maybe formalism and in this article they said that Gödel theory is a uh, strikes at at Hilbert theorem no if Gödel is correct we can say something about the meaning of math maybe math is something else that you have like real I don't know what this word means but real mathematical entity mm-hmm. and you have like intuitions and what is uh, your take about how does the theory of Gödel correlate with different school schools of thought of math yeah well uh, you're right there is this school of thought which is called formalism whereby mathematics is just concerned with man- manipulating formulae and uh, they don't actually refer to anything independent of them and uh There are a lot of people that subscribe to that view in the philosophy of mathematics and a lot of people that are opposed to that view, one of the great controversies in the philosophy of mathematics. Now, my own view um, is that Gödel's theorem doesn't really help us with that debate. Um, I don't myself think that it tells against formalism because... The formalist can always say that um, what their axioms are are just formulae, and what they're interested in is what you can derive from those formulae. And if there are certain things that are left open by those formulae, then you have to... And you want to settle those questions you have to add new formulae but the formalist can still think that what you're dealing with fundamentally are formulae I don't think the formalist need be threatened by that and the question how you decide what to add obviously is an interesting one and 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 does raise some difficulties for the formalist but it It's an interesting question that raises difficulties for everybody. I mean, it's not a special problem for the formalist. So I think we have to be very, very cautious about assuming that Gödel's theorem is going to help settle any of these questions in the philosophy of mathematics. Now, Gödel's theorem was introduced in 1930s, approximately. And you... you In, in the first uh, page of your book, you mentioned this uh, date. And we are almost 100 years after. In your opinion, what has been changed in the world of math or philosophy because of this theorem? Did we stop investigating certain directions because Goethe said no? This is a no-way zone. What do you think happened um, ago, after? Yeah, well, um, there's been a continuous philosophical discussion about the theorem of, of the kind that we've been engaged in. Um, There were these arguments due to Lucas and Penrose, um, which 
have been debated and challenged and that discussion carries on. Um, from a purely mathematical point of view, um, I think, again, we probably do well to look upon Gödel's theorem as opening doors rather than closing doors. Um, it, I think we can view it in a positive light rather than negative light. Um, he, it is true that what he proved was um, something about limitations, limitations of the axiomatic method, but actually um, that in itself had positive repercussions. Um, because there were cases where you could show that you were able to do something with a certain set of axioms that you wouldn't be able to do with a weaker set of axioms. Um, and because of Gödel's theorem, and that in itself becomes your way of recognizing that they are stronger axioms. And so there are a lot of results of that kind where you, because of Gödel's theorem, you're able to show that one particular set of axioms is more powerful than another, or stronger than another. Um, and uh, after Gödel established his result, there were lots of examples of mathematicians applying it in that way. Um, and also the very techniques that he used. I mean, we were talking earlier about how he um, translated statements about formulae into statements about natural numbers and showed that statements about formulae could be recast as statements about natural numbers. Um, now, those are, uh, that's a matter of the techniques that he used, but those techniques have proved incredibly powerful and incredibly useful to mathematicians, and they've been applied extensively. In... Let, me, let me ask you one thing. You said in, in an interview that one of the two philosophers that influenced you the most was Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. And Immanuel Kant spoke tremendously about the importance of math. He said that all mathematical sentences are analytically, synth are synthetically priori. In, in fact, they, we don't need experience to confirm them, but they tell us, they tell us something new on the reality world. And there is a famous quote or a phrase by Karl Popper that he said, I'm a, I, th I, don't, I don't know how he said it in, uh, in English, but it was a, I'm a corrected Kantianian or a modified Kantianian because I live after the revolution of quantum mechanics and the new math. Kant thought that Euclidean geometry is the only geometry possible. Mm -hmm. Kant thought that Newton or New, New, Newtonian physics is the only physics possible okay in other words if we saw something that doesn't apply to the laws of newton kant would have said you just can't see it something mm -hmm. like this and my question is as a kant 
lover, as a Kant, uh, as a Kant student, would you think that Kant would change something in his theory after Gödel theorem? Let's say that Kant was a was a, a, a was introduced to Gödel theorem. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Uh, it's a fascinating question, um, a really fascinating question. Kant is my own favorite philosopher. I mean, I think Kant was an extraordinary philosopher. But um, if we were able to resuscitate him and, and bring him up to date with everything that has been discovered since his time, there's a hell of a lot that would trouble him far more than Gödel's theorem <laughs> for, for, the, for the reasons that you've given. I mean, in particular... 20th century physics would totally freak him out because as you correctly point out he took for granted that space physical space was Euclidean and the physicists in the 20th century told us that space was not Euclidean so that would already have been a problem for Kant a really serious problem for Kant um, and he would have had to give up his views about geometry at least um now would he have had to give up his views about arithmetic um not yet um but now you're raising the really fascinating question whether Gödel's theorem might pose a threat to his views about arithmetic um and it It is a fascinating five question. plus seven equals twelve uh, maybe uh, we don't know <laughs> yeah. um, I mean I it, my answer actually is the same as what I said about formalism i I think in fact that Gödel's theorem leaves those disputes untouched um, and um If you're somebody like Kant who believes that arithmetic is synthetic and a priori, I think you can carry on believing that. Um, if you're somebody who disagrees with Kant, maybe you think that arithmetic is analytic um, or maybe you're... sympathetic to Russell and Whitehead and you think it is logic in disguise um you may be able to carry on believing that as well I mean these are incredibly complicated questions we do you we, yourself so uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt do you yourself consider the mathematical sentence Fermala theorem mm-hmm. as synthetic or analytic this is I, a priori this is a priori okay but yeah. do you think that all because again, If you manipulate the sentences, if you manipulate the sentence, so then, I'm sorry, then many, uh, many philosophers today think, no, the, physicals, uh, the physical laws are th- synthetics, but the mathematical laws are analytic. Would you consider yeah. today, in your opinion, Pythagoras theorem is a synthetic a priori or analytic a priori? A priori? Um, I am uncomfortable with the distinctions, actually. I, I, I'd be one of those people that would um, 
query quite what is meant by the analytic synthetic distinction um, or for that matter, the a priori empirical distinction. Um, uh, and, 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 and in particular, of course, that means that I would have to disagree with my great hero, Kant. Um, I mean, these were crucial distinctions for him. Um, but I think probably the, the best way to think about these questions is not in those terms. Because I, I, this is a very hard question, because I believe that God created the world with math. And what we, uh, what we do is discovering math. And in a way, this, mm. it means that those sentences tell us something about the world. This is not like a, a one, 100 by 100 big chess game that we can decide whatever rules that we want and then play. Because every time, a new mathematical truth is discovered, we see how it implies to the world of physics, bio biology, uh, everything, genetics. So it is very hard to say, no, this is just analytic. I think mathematical truth exists in the real world in a way that God created the world with math. So math is everywhere. Yeah. It's not just in your mind and what you think that you want to come up with. No, it, in, it intertwined in, in everything in the physical world. Yeah. I mean, as it happens, I am inclined to disagree with you about that. I mean, that, so oh, that would... This is great. That would be that, I mean, if, if, if we had much longer, that, that would perhaps be a point at which we would start to part company. Um, but, uh, and, and it, I think it would take us too far afield, unfortunately, now. But let me add that, um, you know, um, even if I'm right and you're wrong, which is a big if, obviously, but even if I am, um, you're certainly not alone in holding those views. And in particular, Gödel would have agreed with you rather than with me. Gödel's own view was very much like the view that you've just sketched. Um, he believed that there is a mathematical reality out there that's quite independent of us um, and that we're involved in discovery rather than invention. And, um, and that, you know, we have a... a, a a faculty for discovering mathematical truths, which is a bit like our five senses, which enable us to perceive the physical world. So you've got Gödel on your side, even if you and got and we can say another thing. What is the meaning of this distinction between discovering and inventing? Yeah. Could you like in the school of logical positivism, positivism? Mm. I'm sorry. What does it mean? Okay, so give me one example that if you invent math, this it goes like this, and if you discover math, it goes like this. And it is very hard to find something in the reality, in the real world, that we say, ah, okay, this what this incident will separate between invention and discovery school. Yeah, don't have. I, I I I I agree. I agree. I mean, it's it, it's. I mean, they're just metaphors, aren't they? And it's very hard to explain what the difference comes to. I mean, I think the, the 
the best way of teasing out the disagreement here, if there is a if there is a disagreement, would be um, by thinking about how we would react if we came across aliens yes. who did mathematics differently. Um, uh, so suppose these little green men land <laughs> and, and they're sophisticated enough that we can start to communicate with them. Either we learn their language or they're able to learn um, English, let's say. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we, we find that we have a lot in common with them, but we also find that we, there are a lot of differences. And in particular, it turns out that their mathematics is strikingly different from ours. Um, and perhaps even looks incompatible with ours. Um, But until such alien comes, uh, we can see the debate. But as my friend uh, said uh, once, the best proof that super intelligence creatures uh, exist in in the universe is that they choose not to go here, not to come (laughs) visit, okay? (laughs) This is most... Now, Adrian, first, thank you so much for your time. It was... I, I don't have another uh, adjective beside mind-blowing, but it was really expanding the mind. In your interview, you said something that I highlight because I, I love so much those parts of the interview. And it was, what is or what was your writing routine? Because you write many, many books and you are editor of a, of a philosophical journal. And you said, it is just as it's always been, pretty rigid. In fact, during a lengthy period of sustained writing, my routine is not unlike that of a typical nine to five job. I'm liable to start at the same time each day, early to mid morning, and to finish at the same time each day, late afternoon to early evening with a break for for lunch. My graduate friends often used to tease me for putting my pen down at precisely 6 p.m. because you are a a Kant student, yes? (laughs) Yes. No matter what stage. Well, I was in my writing, even if I was in the middle of a sentence. Could you please say or give uh, some tips to people who want to write more? Might be uh, uh, academic papers or new books about your writing beside what I just uh, read? Well, Once again, I'm I'm sorry to say that I'm going to disappoint you because um, (laughs) students often ask me uh, a similar question, you know, what advice do I give them about writing routines and such like. Um, But I don't like to give advice because I think so much of this is is personal. Um, uh, I mean, as it happens, I am a creature of habit um and i couldn't really work in any other way but i know but i know that that's a a matter of temperament and um other people work very very differently and it can be just as effective um so i don't want to be prescriptive about this i think what you've got to try to do anybody that's interested in doing sustained academic work what you've got to try to do is to find your own way of um, doing it, the, the way that is most comfortable for you uh, as an individual. 
Adrian, I don't know. I, you, you are talking and in my head, I'm just uh, planning our next conversation, maybe on infinite, on the infinity or five or points of view, your most important uh, book. I want to thank you again so much. It was a wonderful con- conversation. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I would be only too pleased to have another conversation with you at some time. That, that would be great. Thank you, Adrian. Bye-bye. Goodbye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה. Yeah.